Today is June 22nd, 2016. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 10. We're going to talk about honey from the rock. Boy, I enjoyed Pastor Sutherland's uh, Father's Day message. And uh, if Brother Pirro takes us any deeper in worship, we might just be able to leave this old world behind and enter into the newness of the kingdom of God on earth. Say there when you're in Deuteronomy 10 and verse 3. Those of you that are guests tonight, we are thankful for you. Uh, we're not big on formality. If we see you three times, we figure that uh, you're family. Whether you want to be or not, uh, we kind of claim you. That happens. We are a church that will pull you in. Uh, that is because we take seriously the high call of God to present everyone perfect in Christ. So we're not interested in you sitting on your salvation praising your blessed assurance, and uh, wasting away without purpose. We have no desire to fleece you, no desire to entertain you. We have every desire to join along with you in the calling that God has on your life so that we might all stand before him and hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. All right, Deuteronomy 10.3, are you there? So I made an ark out of acacia wood and chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones. Say, like the first ones. Like the first one. And I went up on the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. The Lord wrote on these tablets what he had written before. Say, written before. written before. The Ten Commandments he had proclaimed to you on the mountain out of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. Then I came back down the mountain and put the tablets in the ark. Where did he put them? In the ark. I had made as the Lord commanded me, and they are there now. Moses could say this as the book of Deuteronomy was being written. Some 40 years after the tablets were originally given. But we all know that that is not the whole story, don't we? What happened to the first set of tablets? They were broken. And why were they broken? Because the people were in revelry. They had made for themselves golden calves, and even some of the leaders were carried away with it. Moses was angry. Not only did he break the tablets, but he ground up their idols and made them drink the ground-up idols in water. That's not a pretty story, is it? Just... 50 days outside of Egypt, and people were already in pagan idolatry again. Within 50 days of seeing the Red Sea split, after seeing such beautiful things as manna fall from the heavens, they were already in pagan idolatry. But that's not what Deuteronomy 10 says got put in the ark. Deuteronomy 10 says that he put the new tablets, the tablets that were whole, the tablets that were stone and complete, that were exactly like the first ones. I would submit to you today that your failures will never define your testimony. That the grace and power of God are what defines you. Why grace? Grace because although the first tablets were broken, a second set appeared. God didn't have to do that. That's more than unmerited favor. But it was not a license to break them again. 
It was simply his grace that you could keep going even though you had failed. Why do we say power? Because what they couldn't keep for two hours while Moses was on the mountain, now for 40 years were still whole and intact inside that Ark of the Covenant. So many times in our life, we're sure that because we zigged when we should have zagged, because we looked at something we shouldn't have looked at, because we said something that we shouldn't have said or didn't say what we should say. Now, now my circumstances are my own fault and God, He's abandoned me somehow. You think that your list of failures are what defines you. And so the longer it goes, the more despair rises up above your head and wars against your trust in the living God. I want to tell you that what Israel carried around in a golden box was a whole incomplete testimony. It was not broken. It did not reflect their failures. It reflect, reflected God's perfection. A covenant of love that he gave to his people. Commands of love. He begins in the first command and says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the loving groom who came to get you. He goes on to say, you shall have no gods besides me. Look, we're going to have something totally exclusive. This is a covenant of love that God made with the people. And the way that they responded was that they attempted to obey him. In Exodus, the 20th chapter, and you don't have to turn there. We're going to camp in Deuteronomy for a minute. In the very same chapter that Ten Commandments were given, an altar was built that anticipated the breaking of the commandments. That is grace. That is grace and the power of God to say, if you will trust me, I will wash over your failures. While we're on that subject, turn to the right in your Bible until you find the book of Titus. I'd like to talk to you about grace in this present age and in every other age. I'm not a pastor that thinks that God changed his mind a couple thousand years in or that God had a plan B just in case something didn't work. I actually believe he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he does not change and he does not lie. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. To how many men? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Let's just talk for a minute. I have sons now that all drive. Some drive well, some not so well. Some I would prefer they drove their mother's car to my truck. If you total your vehicle and you get another vehicle, is your first thought, I can total as many as I want? Or are you overwhelmed at the goodness that although you destroyed what you were given, somebody gave you another shot? That is the sense in which Titus is speaking about grace. Grace is not a license for immorality. Grace is the power to keep going even though you failed. To be made new again and again and again. Grace is distorted in our time and it has left people with the feeling that they're supposed to claim a promise that the Bible doesn't say and because it never realizes in their hearts They're left empty. 
What I mean by that is simply saying I'm sorry or it's covered under grace doesn't mean it's covered under grace. However, pressing into the presence of God and Him giving you a new attitude, Him giving you a new heart, giving you a new will to try again, that's like being born again all over again. That is grace that leads us away from ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. Say, wait for the blessed hope. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How long will you struggle with failure and the need to be made new? You're going to wait and struggle until the blessed hope appears. That's not an excuse to not struggle. But it is an explanation for why you are struggling. Is there anybody in here that has fought through a little discouragement in the last few weeks? How about that? I leaned over during worship and whispered to Cassidy, Matthew's wife. You see Randy over there? Randy, raise your hand. I said, we may fail with a bunch, but we hadn't failed with that one. She is a different human being than when she walked through the doors of this church. Her hands are raised because she's in love with the Lord, not because somebody around her told her to raise her hands. She's released herself in the presence of God from all concern about what people around her or anywhere else think. She cares about what the King of Kings thinks. When I sit here and I look out and I see Frank and Brandy sitting in the middle, the devil will lie to them and tell them that their life is defined by what they haven't gotten right. But all I can see is how far they've come since they got here. All I can see is the way that God is revolutionizing their family. The way that their children are calling on the Lord. When I look out and see Steve and Joyce. Man. I didn't know what God had sent me from the East Coast. By way of Austin. At first, I thought it might be telling. And then I watched the gospel working inside of them. I've never seen such bold and courageous faith. The enemy is lying to you all of the time saying, because you broke this, because you smeared this, because you stepped on this, because you tripped over this, that is who you are. But that is not the testimony that was carried around in the desert. That is not the testimony that God said would be wrapped in a golden box and put on the shoulders of men. That is not the testimony that they took into war and defeated their enemies. That is not the testimony that stood in the temple of Dagon and knocked him over so that his head and hands fell off. The testimony was that although you have broken and transgressed God's commands, He is able to make that promise new in your life again. I stand before you a man that has failed more than most and I'm not even upset by it. Because every failure has given God a chance in my life to display His power where there was otherwise miserable weakness. So we do not preach our perfection. We preach the perfection of Christ and our aim is that perfection. We will not let up, back up, shut up until we have reached it. It is holiness or die trying. But I refuse to sit and lick my wounds and give the devil two victories. One on the day that I sinned 
and another every day that I did not do the will of God because I felt unworthy afterwards. Please turn with me to Colossians, the first chapter. Say there when you were there. So our air conditioners went out. What is new? This has been a time period where the adversity has swirled about us in ways that make it so obvious we can just get kind of a grin and say, so it's going to be like that, huh? I live for these days, to be honest. I'm a better wartime pastor than a peacetime pastor. I can be lulled to sleep. I can become apathetic during times that don't have the appropriate amount of adversity. But if the devil messes up and slaps me in the face, all of a sudden I remember what I was born for. Today I'd like you to remember that you were born again for a purpose. That you are not a doormat for the devil. Your foot is on his neck, whether it feels like it or not. In Colossians, the first chapter, look at the 28th verse, uh, 27th verse. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Answer me a question, is Christ in you or not? If Christ is in you, then how can you be a failure? If Christ is in you, then how is it that you say you cannot succeed? If Christ is in you, how can we be depressed? If Christ is in you, how can you be anything other than a man possessed by Christ? We have to grab hold of this promise. There is a day coming when the circumstances around you will get much harder than they are today. Look around the world. Our faith cannot depend upon the pleasantness of our circumstances. It must depend on the power of Christ working inside of us. Let your convictions begin to run deep in this area. You need them. If you find that you're immature in an area, if you find that you're struggling in an area that's embarrassing, begin to praise God for that because you have just set a benchmark of where you were. Leave it. Move on, and God will get the glory of the increase. You'll be able to look back and say, on that day, I recognized I was failing in this area. On that day, I came to terms with my utter need for the power of Christ. And today, I stand on top of my enemy and not beneath him. A friend of mine had a seizure right before we began the service. We smiled together and laughed and said, this is not the first time our bodies have been disobedient to what our spirit says must happen. Let's make the devil pay for that. And I intend to. Church, there needs to be a Holy Ghost defiance that rises up in you and says, I am more than a collection of my performance. I'm a son or a daughter of the living God. Verse 28, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. So that we may present who? Everyone. That's Samira. That's Gabriel. That's Peyton. That's Joellen. That's everyone perfect in Christ. Now you may have an easier time believing that the one on your left or right is more perfect than you are. We are all perfect in Christ if we are doing what He says to do. 
The only man that ought to be scared is the one that knows the good that he ought to do and is not doing it. What we need is His promise placed deeply inside of us. What we need are the convictions that God gives us placed deeply inside of us so that they cannot be uprooted when the air conditioner goes out. They cannot be uprooted if tax exemption is taken away. They cannot be uprooted if you have two idiots running for a presidential office. We are either of a kingdom that is beyond the circumstances of this world or we are ordinary subjects of this world. I, for one, am born from above. How about you? How long will we entertain thoughts that the Bible says we cannot entertain? We're going to stay right here in Colossians, but in the second letter to the Corinthian church in the 10th chapter, he tells us plainly, we are to take every thought captive to Christ. Have you been dwelling on unwholesome thoughts about yourself that the Bible says you are not allowed to have? Psalm 139 says you were fearfully and wonderfully made. That God knit you together. He built you with purpose. Do you really think that He made bad stuff? Will you stand and accuse your Maker of not making you to your liking? And where did you get such self-esteem problems from? Do they not come from sin? Do they not come from comparing yourself with somebody other than the self that God called you to be? I feel sorry for the ladies. You're the most amazing thing that God has created. I cannot get over what my wife can do in a day. It's extraordinary. And everywhere you turn, you see an airbrushed image. Everywhere you turn, there is a vision of success shoved in your face that is not even real for the skeleton that is on the advertisement. This is not where our worth comes from. We don't need to be plastic Christians. We don't need to be more acceptable to people's flesh. We simply need to be secure in who God made us to be, and it is a sin to be otherwise. You have something about yourself that you do not like. Ask yourself, does Christ love it or does Christ hate it? If he hates it, get rid of it and be glad that you realized it. If he loves it, then it is sin for you to hate it. We proclaim him and admonishing him and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labor Struggling with all his energy. With all whose energy? His energy. Which so powerfully works in me. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We'll be in the 12th chapter. The power of Christ works in us. It is the power of Christ that causes us to succeed. Anytime that we are not leaning on him, the predictable result, just like jumping out of a plane, produces gravity acting upon you. Is failure. So when you fail, we're not so much discovering how bad you are as how much you already are what we knew you were. We're finding an area that you did not lean on the heavenly power given you, an area that you are not trusting Christ. Praise God, we identified it. Now that we've identified it, let's move on and not dwell in it. 
If you've made it through an entire week without your cheeks beginning to hurt from the smile on your face, you need to consider how you're living. There are a lot of things that make us mad. I can get mad on a level that would surprise a few of you and others of you, not at all. When I heard that a pit bull attacked a friend of mine's family, got their dog, not just one, but a few. My very first thought was, shoot all three. Hang them from their hind legs on your porch so that your neighbors can see it and eat dog that evening for dinner. My brother did what was necessary to protect his family and no more. A man disciplined to do what God has said and not necessarily what he desires. The man who is born of God is led by the Spirit of God. It is easy to be angry all of the time. There are a few men that are on the radio and I enjoy their insights, but I just cannot be mad 365 days a year. I'm not going to do it. It's not how I want to live. The truth is, is there's enough good things happening that we can have hearts filled with gratitude. And the anger that you feel can simply cause you to move more towards an attitude of gratitude. I didn't mean for that to rhyme in that way. 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 9. But he said to me, this is Paul pleading about a thorn in his side. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Where is power made perfect? So list for me all of your inadequacies. Try to define them. Let them define you if you wish. But all we are doing is finding the conduit for which God's power is made perfect. So you tell me how weak you are and I will tell you Christ has made you stronger than you think. I'm really tired of arguing with people because I believe they're capable of more than they believe they are. Your argument for your own weakness is the argument for God's strength working in you. Because it's in weakness that his power is made perfect. The man that has to worry about a limited supply of heavenly power is the one that is trusting in his own arm. Not the one who figuratively has no arms. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Oh, I know this is counterintuitive. It's a little bit like losing your life that you might find it. I know it's not what we desire to do. But if you are not hemmed in against the Red Sea with Pharaoh bearing down on you, then we don't find out the strength of God that splits the Red Sea and you walk through on the other side. So of course you're surrounded by mountains. Of course you're surrounded by your own inner battles. Of course you are surrounded by problems. Which makes you acutely aware of your need for Christ's power. Oh, and let me tell you with a smile on my face, you can have it. You can have his power. 
The same power that he exerted in his son when he raised him from the dead is available for you. He doesn't require you to be a Pentecostal. He doesn't require for you to join some non-denominational charismatic community. He requires you to want to be filled with his power. To hunger and thirst for righteousness. To care less about what people think and more about what he thinks. Look at 2 Corinthians with me. 2 Corinthians, the first chapter. While you're turning there, you've passed over the 11th chapter. In the 11th chapter, Paul said, if I must boast, if I have to go on boasting like this, I'm going to boast about my weakness. When's the last time you heard someone talking like that? I've noticed that men in the kingdom in this body that are growing, that have reason to take pride in what God is doing in their life are discouraged. Saying things like, you know, I just don't, I don't think I'm where I need to be yet. You'll never be where you need to be. Perfection is the aim. The question is, are you standing right now where he told you to be? If your desire was not insatiable, something would be wrong with you. What does it mean to be filled to the measure of Christ, as Ephesians says? You have an insatiable desire in you to be like Christ, so of course you're always going to be left wanting more. Something's wrong with the man that doesn't want more. But we need to learn to take stock of where we stand. There is something to be said for going to work when you didn't want to work. want to stay home today, but I felt like it was God's will that I go to work that I provide for my family. And when you do it and you didn't want to, you should be proud that God has proven himself powerful in your life. By the way, let me just take a raw survey here. How many people in this room read the Bible enough? Yep, not one hand goes up, not even mine. What would enough look like? An hour a day? Two hours a day? Ten hours a day? 28 hours in a 24-hour period. What would be enough? (laughs) There will never be enough. And we're not going to settle for what we have either. What we're going to do is be proud of what God has done in our life. A brave young lady restarted ministries in her life after a message not long ago. It's harder to start again sometimes. But that is exactly the testimony that is carried in the box. It was not the pristine, never broken. It was the broken and now replaced as totally new. Church, we got to grab hold of this. There should be a momentum that's building in here. We should learn to celebrate that the Adarmas household is on fire for God. Because I remember when they were just Curious, casual Christians trying to figure this out. Now they're dangerous to the enemy. I remember the day that Ibrahim walked through the doors of this congregation. He's a different human being than the day that he walked in here. And now that little Swiss miss is by his side, there's no telling what they'll do. In 2 Corinthians, the first chapter. In the ninth verse, 
Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. On what are you relying? If you are looking at your own life and and you're disappointed, perhaps you've been relying on the wrong things. There should be satisfaction in every moment that you are led of the Spirit. And it's okay to celebrate them. Have you ever been walking through somewhere and you felt like the Lord told you to speak to someone and you kind of debated it, but you remembered a time you failed to do it and so you walked over to talk to Him? Anybody in here had that experience? How about that? What I hear as a pastor as the story is recounted to me is I thought God spoke to me, but the thing is they spit in my face and told me to go away. Or the thing is they walked away from me. Or the thing is it didn't seem very fruitful. That was never the point. The point is do you do what God says? When He says to do it, the results are up to Him. Take pride in the Holy Ghost that He speaks to you and that you try to obey Him. You know, I'm going to be honest, it's all we have. We're not going to build a compact center. I don't want to be friends with Oprah Winfrey. All we have is the raw obedience to what we believe God has said for us to do. You can take pride in the fact that you are a son or a daughter of God when you obey His voice. And if you realize that you did not obey His voice, you can be excited and be filled with gratitude that you have just identified one area that you are going to grow in starting now. What we cannot do is dwell in discontentment and let it define our lives. We cannot do it. Nobody in the history of the world has ever said, look at that depressed person covered in despair. I want what they have. For fear that I've overemphasized my point, let us go back to the law. Let's go to Exodus 25. There are messages that I beat you with an ugly stick. Tonight, at least, it will be a pretty stick. In Exodus 25, let us notice the specific wording of verse 21. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Put in the ark what? The testimony. We think of the ark of the covenant and the ark of the testimony as that box. It's not. The box is the ark. The testimony is what's inside it. Are you hearing me? What is God putting inside of you? What has He put that is a perfect promise from the heavens that you carry around in a box of flesh? See, it's not the box that makes the testimony. It's the testimony that makes the box. We call it the ark of the covenant because there's a covenant inside of it. A covenant between God and man. Uh, An offer of love from the living God to a people group and their response to Him. We call it the Ark of the Testimony because it is the story of a faithful God to a people that He knew would be unfaithful from the beginning, but they would try. 
And if they trusted him, he would save them. They're above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. I will meet with you and will give you all my commandments for the Israelites. I know that in the Christian church, we think we know what faith is. I know that some old lady knitted it on a pillow and you have it in your house somewhere. There is a big difference between quoting the verse and being able to live it. So keep a finger here in Exodus 25. Put a Bible marker in it and go with me to Hebrews 11. And before you attempt to tune me out because you believe that you know when we go to Hebrews 11 exactly what it says, I want to challenge you to look at it with a fresh eye. When the scripture says the word faith in the Newer Testament, it is usually the Greek word pistis. There are a lot of ways to think about pistis, but a better English translation might be trust. I'm going to work in and out of faith and trust tonight. The reason is in the English language, George Michael can sing, you've got to have faith, and everybody thinks he's talking about what Hebrews 11 is talking about. Everybody talks about their faith. As if it's a noun. But in the Greek, it's a verb. And in Hebrew, the word immuna, another one for, for faith, is also a verb. And it means trusting. Now, faith or trusting is being sure of what we hope for. Do you really trust God? If His Word says, seek first the kingdom and everything you need will be added to you. Seek first His righteousness and what you need will be given. Are you really trusting Him if you are biting your nails right now, not sure how you're going to be provided for? And when I come and I show you the verse, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, Pastor, I know. Yeah, I know that you think you know. But why do you have Xanax on your counter? Trusting the Lord is certain that what He told you is just true is completely true. It's inside the box. You may not be able to see it, but you know it's there. Your provision is there. You just don't know it. That's trusting God. Now, trust is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not, dare I say, cannot see. How certain are you? That God's word for you is true. Or have you fallen into the trap of going, I know he gave me a good word. But the thing is, last Thursday, Brother Pero said this to me and I smacked back at him. And now, now I'm pretty sure God's abandoned me. Now you assault God's character so that you can hold on to your depression? What kind of God is he? If he turns his back on you when you do what he knew you would do. Don't assault the character of God. He is a loving Father. Now, He deals with sin, and He will absolutely burn the wicked. There's no question. But no man who has ever trusted God, ever, has been abandoned by Him. Don't you dare fall into the category of thinking that human fathers are more benevolent, more magnanimous, better, more compassionate than your heavenly Father. When I gave my son the keys to a car, I knew it was going to wreak havoc upon the rest of the world. But I wanted him to be able to drive. 
There was a price we were willing to pay because we cared for him. Which one of you turns your kid away because they act like a stupid kid? You don't. And your heavenly father doesn't give up on you just because you're giving up on yourself. He doesn't do it. He is not like that. And when we act like that, what we're actually doing is branding ourselves as faithless. I don't want to be known as faithless. I want to show that I trust Him even when I can't trust myself. I want every act of obedience to be grounded in trust in Him. I believe that that obedience flows from faith or trust, which is what Romans 1.5 says. But let's read the sixth verse here. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. How many times have you heard that verse used as a cudgel? Many times as you've heard me speak. I'm a brutal pastor. I know that. I'm not trying to be anything other than who I am. But when something is true, whether it's ugly, difficult, or pleasant and wonderful, my, my litmus test is whether or not God has said to say it. So I'm not particularly worried about, I think y'all know that about me. I'm not all that worried about how it goes over. Believe me when I tell you that to use this verse solely as, hey, without faith it's impossible to please God, ignores the point of the verse. Here's what faith in God looks like. Because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Well, even the demons in hell believe he exists, so forgive me, what does that mean? I mean, you meet very few people that don't believe God exists. Even the ones that claim they're atheists, they're just lying to avoid their own feelings of judgment. Most people know God exists. So what about that is faith? It's not difficult to believe that God exists somewhere. It's right up there with God can do anything. The real question is whether or not He exists in your situation with you. Whether or not He can do anything through you. Whether or not He will reward the man in that situation who is seeking Him. So let me ask you, are you showing faith? In your situation, in your struggle with your children, in your struggle with your relatives, in your fight to maintain your job, in your discipline to try to read the word in your struggle to advance the cause of evangelism do you believe that he is standing next to you helping you and he will reward you for seeking him because he loves you or are you acting like i may have had a calling at one time but i mean that's not faith it's actually a terrible deception let me just go ahead and get this one out there too Is God doing this to me? Or is this because I made bad decisions and that's that's why I'm where I'm at? Or is, is this just the devil that's attacking me? What difference does it make? The response is the same. What difference does it make? Why you're where you're at? Let's deal with where you're at and move forward. I've spent more time in my life trying to go, is this because I did that or that? Look, I'm not trying to excuse the need to learn from our mistakes. What I'm trying to say is not to be paralyzed by them. What difference does it make? The response is you trust Him and do the next thing that He tells you to do. 
not sit there and talk about and feel and beat yourself up and give the devil ammunition to beat you up with about how all of your life this has been such a problem. I got a new life. I got a new life in 1993. Not a new wife, a new life. When I got a new life, I got a new wife too. She got a new husband too. You like this one better than that one? That one was chiseled, but this one is squishy and lovable. Yeah. I'm working on the kinder, gentler Eric Stevens. Christ is on the inside of me under many layers of adipose tissue. You know what? I should probably go to Romans 4. Against all hope, Abraham in hope, Romans 4, 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope, believe. And so he became the father of many nations. Do you know he was called the father of many nations before he became the father of many nations? Think on that for a second. God called him the father of many nations before he was the father of many nations. Has God called you something that you do not see yet in your life? Welcome to the kingdom. He calls you a new creation. He says all old things have passed away. Behold, all things have come new. But you're still staring at the old stuff. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so he became. You want to know how you become what God's called you to be? You believe him even when you don't see it. Samson might be the first guy in the Bible that saw more clearly without his eyeballs than with him. It was at the lowest moment of failure in his life without eyes in the eye socket that he finally began to see what God had called him to do. Church, it is not too late for not one person in this room. I refuse to believe that. I sat next to a lost relative during one of our messages here recently. I get the overwhelming impression that that individual thinks it's too late for them. You know, I could lean over and go, you're right. It's too late for you. But that wouldn't be true to the character of my God. People give up on people. It takes an awful lot to get the Lord to write you off. And you probably will know it because he might put you to death if you've gone that far. Ask Herod. If you were still living and breathing, if you still feel the remotest desire to come into a place like this, even though you might be regretting it right now, It's because the living God loves you and he is drawing you to himself because he made you with a purpose and a design. He cares for you and he wants to help you do the very work that he designed for you to do. I have to believe that that's why you're here. It certainly wasn't for the pretty pastors. It's not for the ornateness of our warehouse. It's because God is drawing you to himself. You could resist a man and get away with it. But you cannot resist the living God and get away with it. So you might as well yield completely. You hate yourself? Well... I hate my sinful self too. Let's crucify them together and be raised in the new self. 
I can admit with you that we hate ourselves. That's just fine. As long as you don't stay the old dead self. The second you turn towards Christ, you commit your heart towards him, he calls you new. And against all hope, you better believe that. It's the only way to become what he's called you to be. Verse 19, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. He faced that fact. Did you hear that the Bible called it a fact? Since he was about a 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Are you fully persuaded? Or have you managed to persuade yourself that somehow or another, what God deposited in you, you have managed to stifle or ruin? Abraham had committed a sin with Hagar, but his life wasn't over. Abraham lied to Abimelech, but his life wasn't over. Abraham made mistakes, but he ends up the father of the faithful because he never stopped trusting his God. I'm not talking about a grace that says, go ahead and make your mistakes. I'm talking about a grace that says, you're bigger than that. Let's move on from it. It is the testimony that will define you. What would you like to be defined by? In the fourth chapter of Philippians, which I will not go to, starting in the 11th verse and going through the 13th verse, Paul says clearly, he's learned the secret to being content in every situation. Do you know what the secret was? He had a testimony buried inside him. He had an experience with the living God. He knew one thing for sure. He may hate the man that he was on some days, but he's certainly not the man that he used to be. He knew that the power of God was working inside of him. He knew that he was a man possessed of Christ. So I ask you again, is Christ in you? If Christ is in you, then how can we sit depressed? How could we sit despairing? How could we sit hopeless? How could we say, I know, but... I don't allow my teenagers to say it. I would prefer that you never said it. Sheep do not butt. Goats do. Let's go back to Exodus 25. The way the Lord began to speak this message to me was really about this testimony in this box. We talked a little bit about the testimony being put in the box in verse 21. Let's look at the construction of the box in verse 10. 25.10. Have them make a chest of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits long and a cubit and a half wide. And a cubit and a half high. You know, acacia wood is one of those interesting things. This is, uh, this is mesquite. We call it uh, Texas olive trees. I'm teasing. There's no such thing as a Texas olive tree. Acacia is, uh, in your Older Testament, under a slightly less pretty name. The Older Testament, it's called Shittim wood. It is referred to by the nomads in the area as a desert air conditioner. And it's because these are the trees that have a kind of flat top, and from the bottom, they branch out towards the top, and it's flat, and it creates shade underneath. The way that they pollinate, 
is wind has to carry their little seeds. And so they tend to be planted in rows where the wind blows. So in the desert, if you can find an acacia tree, you sit under the acacia tree and you're almost guaranteed that there's going to be a breeze because that's how the tree got planted there. And then, of course, there's shade from the sun. Acacias are an interesting thing. They're ugly. They got orangish-brown thorns all over them. It's almost like saying, don't touch me. Get away from me. I got a tough exterior so that you'll back up and leave me alone. If you knew, if you knew what you were dealing with, you wouldn't even come close. Except if you peel that back on the inside, there's really something that's soft and workable. You know, acacia trees are a lot like human beings. The other way that this works is they have a strange root system. It grows almost straight down. It goes deep into the earth. It, the roots find things in the soil to wrap around since they don't spread out very far. So they're usually deeply rooted into the earth and wrap around a rock. So if you want to build the ark, you have to go cut and dig at the acacia tree. You have to work hard to uproot it from the earth. Once you've uprooted it from the earth and you drag it back to God's camp, you begin stripping off that outer poisonous, thorny bark. Isn't that what God's doing with us? Hasn't he uprooted you from your previous life? Isn't he debarking you, so to speak? You know, and why was that ever there? Because it's a tough world out there and insects want to eat that tree and rodents want to eat that tree and everything wants to eat that tree so the tree developed natural defenses but that's not how the tree is supposed to be in God's house. So you strip all of that off. And inward is a pure white wood. It's not a particularly impressive wood. It's not strong like the oak. It's not particularly flexible. It has no real good qualities. I think God chose it because it's a lot like us. But in the next verse, what does he do with it? Verse 11. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and... What is the order? Do you get gold on the outside first or the inside first? Friends, if you're the project of God, if you are the container of His testimony, He uproots you from the world. If you see that you still have attachments to the world, then you go ahead and go, look, I don't want that warfare. I don't want to be a friend of the world and an enemy of God, so I'm going to cut that tie. But you don't stop and go, hey, I'm worthless because I had that attachment to the world. The closer you get to God's house, the more you will feel that every little thing is being broken off of you. When that outer material is being stripped away and you find yourself saying things like, you know, in every job I ever had, I was a success and here I'm just falling on my face. Well, yeah, your bark's getting stripped off. You ever notice that when men meet each other 10 minutes into it, it's like, hey, what do you do for a living? Why not ask me how tall I am and what I weigh, you know? It's a way that we kind of size each other up and and maybe without meaning to hold people into certain classes and distances. God will strip every bit of that away from you so that maybe you're falling on your face at your job and you're trying to wonder how is it that I came into Christ? I got serious about Jesus. I fell in love with Him and now it's all falling apart. Yeah, He's taking away those crutches. 
It's making sure you don't have anything but him. Is that such a bad thing? Don't fight that process of stripping away what is really poisonous and thorny. Because what comes right after it is it begins to overlay gold and you can't see it. It's inside of you. He pours his gold into you, his divine nature, Peter says, a long time before it shows up on the outside of you. But if he is in you, then he will show up on the outside of you. It's a matter of time. Church, have you given up on that? Is there an area of your life you've begun to accept? Because if Christ is in you, everything on the outside of you can change. You don't have a habit that can't be beaten. You don't have a tendency that can't be kicked down. I have watched the most powerful things that have ever mastered human beings broken in the name of Jesus Christ. It's not even hard for him. It's hard for us. For him, it's easy, which has to lead you to believe that if you're still struggling with something, he could remove it immediately. It must be good for you to experience the struggle. I'd like to talk to you about people who experience the struggle. I'm going to go law, prophets, writings here. I'm going to do it in the Older and the Newer Testament. And since they're fairly familiar stories, I'll do it rather quickly. In Genesis 13, get there and say there when you're in Genesis 13 and verse 8. Our message is still going somewhere. It's 844. In less time than it took for the movie to sink the boat Titanic, we're going to sink sin in your life. In Genesis 13, 8. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt toward Zor. Important point, that was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abraham lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes. Now, I want to ask you something. Why can Abraham stand there and say, Lot, pick your direction, son. You can have it. I'll take whatever you don't want. How can... Does something inside you go, that's not right? I mean, Abraham's the older man. Abraham's the one that's done everything so far. And Lot chooses for himself. How can we let this be? Abraham had something Lot did not have. He had a promise. In the 12th chapter of Genesis, there was a testimony inside him. I will make you into a great nation. He didn't think that a single choice was worth quarreling over because he valued what had been put inside of him so he didn't need to fight with the people around him. Do you understand? When we have to fight over who said what, who posted what. God, I hate Facebook. Actually, 
In speaking with the pastors the other day, I found a great use for Facebook, okay? Promise not to get mad at me? One of you promised. And he doesn't have a Facebook account. I've said so many times how much I hate Facebook. I found a reason I love it. I want you to be the you that you portray on Facebook. That would be great. If you are the you that you portray on Facebook, we'll be the most powerful church there's ever been. Unfortunately, what you put on Facebook is not true positive about you or negative about you most of the time. It's just what you want to show the world. All right, but I'd like to be encouraging today. I promised I was going to do that. Abraham had a promise. Lot had no promise. So Abraham, when faced with, do I sit here and fight and risk losing this testimony inside me? Do I fight for what I think is mine? Or do I just let him have whatever he wants and trust that God's bigger? He decided to trust God. Could he see how God would work that out? Of course not. But he had a hope and he was completely sure of that hope. And as soon as Lot walked away, God spoke to Abraham and said, look up, and he restated the promise. Are you fighting over things that are just making the promise no effect in your life? Are you smothering it because you think you have to fight for your call? People that talk about their calling all of the time must not understand their calling because the calling is a gift from God. And Psalm 138.8 says, he will perform his, my, his call in my life. I mean, the point is, is if God called you to do it and you do what he says to do, the Lord will fulfill his purpose, his call for me. Psalm 138.8. Then it will come about. You don't have to fight with human beings for your calling. How about this one? The promise allows you to be generous. How generous is Abraham in this? It's because he's confident of what God has said. Now that's in the law. Can you see how a man with the testimony of God in him had affected his behavior and gave him a positive life in that way? Can you see that in the law? Let's move to the prophets. Go to the book of Joshua. When you get to Joshua, say, I'm there. Now find Joshua 14. Now find the 10th verse. Man, we have a diminishing return in here. Everybody found Joshua. A few of you found the... The 14th chapter, two of you found the tale. Okay. 14.10. Now then, just as the Lord promised, He has kept me alive for 45 years since the time He had said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm not going to ask if anybody in here is 80. I can see nobody in here is 85 tonight. This dude's old. Right? That's all the commentary you need on that. He's old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I am just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he has said. Caleb had a promise. I want to tell you something. Your promise has not passed you by. He was 85, but he still had his promise. The giants aren't too big for your promise. The Anakites were a race of giants, but Caleb, a man possessed of the promise, an ark of the testimony, he'd level mountains if he had to. 
Because God was with him. You don't hear Caleb sitting around going, I'm 85 now, I can't do this. Lord, do you see the way my arms wiggle when I worship you? Lord, I got crow's feet by my eyes. My hair's migrated down my back. He doesn't whine. Instead, he had a promise. And because he had a promise, no giant was too big. And though it was late in the season, the season was never open. It was always hunting season on giants. Church, do you feel like your best days are behind you? That's a lie. Best day is the one you're living in if you seize it. Let's move to the writings. How about Daniel? Go to Daniel, the third chapter. When you get there, say, I'm there. In Daniel, the third chapter, we have one of the more moving stories in the Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, and one bad Negro. They stood their ground against Nebuchadnezzar. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, oh my God, I love this. But even if he does not, a minute ago probably had a little snap in his hand when he said it. Even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. When you have a testimony, when you have a promise that you're a son of God, you don't have to be removed from the circumstances. You can be blessed right through the center of the fire. These brothers didn't sit there and say, because our forefathers sinned and we're in Babylon and and, and, and it's just... I said, it doesn't matter what you do to us. Our God is for us. Even by the 28th verse, look what, look what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. And the decree goes out into the whole land. When you trust the king, everything is possible for you. There is no station in life that you can be put in that the resurrecting power of Christ cannot rise you above. In fact, while we're talking about station of life, put Acts 6-8 on the screen. Let's think about it. We're now in the New Testament law. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, the same things that were in the ark did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. This passage goes on to talk about opposition raising among the synagogue of the freedmen. But they could not stand up to the wisdom that he had or the spirit by which he spoke. Church, when you think about this, what was Stephen's position? Just because he was a table waiter in the house of God, just because he had a low position, didn't mean he had low importance. You know, we're pretty sure, like the cow leaning against the barbed wire fence, 
that the grass would be greener somewhere else. That if we just had that, if we, if we were just there, if we were just like them, I find it remarkable that tall girls want to be shorter and shorter girls want to be tall. I find that incredible. And no matter what color your hair is, I mean some women, no matter what color their hair is, they dye it a different color. What is it about us that we're so unhappy in our own skin? What if God made you exactly as he wanted you and all you had to do was be possessed of the spirit of Christ and then no low position would determine you, the high position of God in Christ Jesus would. Is there anybody in here that wants to be possessed of the Holy Ghost, filled with the Holy Ghost, empowered by the Holy Ghost? Revelation 20 and verse 4, the New Testament prophets. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the Word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or His image and had not received His mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. They couldn't be marked by the beast because they were already marked with the testimony of God. Their lives would be measured by the testimony of Christ. Even for them, death was not fatal. Tell me something, Christian. What has happened to you that is fatal? Because these men had their heads cut off and they are still bearers of the testimony of Christ. There is no opposition that can overcome a saint of the living God. There are just saints that can lose their trust. If that has been you, I say strengthen your feeble knees. Set your eyes on the author and perfecter of your faith. Do it in real and meaningful steps. Whatever you have shrunk back from, re-engage. Did you get hurt when you reached out to the men or women in the church? Did you feel yourself not understood or on the outside of a circle? Well, have the trust in your God and the church that He built to try again. Maybe they're just as messed up as you are. What is holding you back? Because if Christ is in you, you are a victorious conqueror. I'd like to finish this particular section in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter where Pastor Wade started. This is the New Testament writings. In 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, starting in the fourth verse. I always thank God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in Him you have been enriched in every way. Think about the people that he's talking to. There were slaves in their midst. There were former temple prostitutes in their midst. There were believers in lawsuits in their midst. There were believers visiting prostitutes in their midst. There were people getting drunk at the communion in their midst. Listen to the sentence again. For in Him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. 
whatever they were and how Christ is in them and they have the ability to change and to become more. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you. He will keep you. He will keep you strong to the end. If you're anything other than strong right now, His will is to keep you strong to the very end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. He is faithful even where you have not been faithful. He will keep you strong. This message was called Honey from a Rock. You ever heard the expression, I can't get blood from a turnip? You usually can't squeeze honey out of a rock either. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. We're nearing the end of our message, but we're approaching the beginning of a brave new world. I have had guns put to my head for the gospel, had knives pulled on me. I've been punched in the face at funerals, spit on for walking down the street, seen demons come out of people now in five continents, swam across rivers with my Bible above my head, had some experiences in Jesus, and I tend to describe Jesus as the rock, the unbreakable, immovable standard. I think of our God as a rock. That comes from verses like this. Deuteronomy 32.4, Pastor Wade read it. He is the rock. His ways are perfect and his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and faithful is he. How many of you have heard that description? You know, when you have stubbed your toe on the standard that is the rock, when you realize that he's the rock and you're not, there's another attribute of this rock that is overlooked very often. Look at verse 13. Pastor Piro was sharing this with me today. He made him ride on the heights of the land and fed him with the fruit of the fields. He nourished him with honey from the with oil from the flinty crag. There is a kind of sweetness to the Lord that we do not give Him credit for. Because He is altogether righteous, because He is altogether holy, because He demands it of you, you forget that He is altogether loving, slow to anger and rich in mercy, and that all you have to do is turn towards Him and He will be like honey to you. There's an ancient Jewish proverb that says the pot fell upon the rock and was dashed to pieces. And so the kettle fell on the pot, fell on the rock and was dashed to pieces. In either case, woe unto the pot and the kettle. I actually think that's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 21 
when he described himself as a stone that uh, falls on men and they're crushed or they stumble over and are broken. He is the immovable thing. You might be broken. He's never broken. And he is able to give you honey right out of his perfection. Tonight, if you could think on the goodness of the Lord, I have just two more passages to read to you, but they're in that vein, the goodness of the Lord. Could you put Matthew 10 on the screen, verse 29? I normally want you to be in your Bible. I want you nowhere else but your Bible. I often even turn off the spring, the screens because I'm one of those mean pastors that wants you to have a Bible and follow along. Just for now, I'm going to trust that you can write a note, says Matthew 10. Just for now. Could you actually look up at the screens, ignore the, the paper that's in your lap, And think about these words as if they were the first time you ever heard them. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. Should that be comforting? That there is nothing happening in your life, period. Nothing. That He hasn't allowed to happen in your life. Now catch the next part. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. He knows you intimately. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. This allows the Christian to say, you know what? I'm not very pleased with the circumstances around me, but they must be good for me. Because sparrows can't fall to the ground without my God allowing it. He's allowed me to be in this position because He loves me. He's stripping away bark from me. He's uprooting me. He's hammering gold inside me and outside me. He is making me a vessel fit for His testimony. There is nothing that can be done to you that is not good for you if you believe that God exists in that situation and rewards those who seek Him. But if you have no trust in Him, no situation not even a perfect garden situation will be good for you. See, the kingdom begins with the acknowledgement that God is with you in your present circumstances and He is good to those who love Him. That's the beginning of the kingdom. And it is so much easier to say than it is to do. We're going to move towards communion. And there is one more verse here that I want you to write. This is Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. We're going to put it on the screen and read it to you. You just write it. Matthew, you'll want to come up here. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are already here, He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, That is to say, not a part of this creation. Christ went to a heavenly place that was not a part of this earthly one. He did not enter by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but He entered the most holy place once and for all by His own blood. Say, by His own blood. blood. Having obtained eternal redemption. Church, when you are thinking about these words... That box was acacia wood. It was inlaid with gold and it was overlaid 
with gold. And then two whole tablets, not your broken commands, whole tablets were placed inside it. And do you know who finished the testimony? He sealed your testimony in his blood. Think on that for a second. If that ark was right here, and the testimony is the promise that God gave you, so the ark is you. The testimony is the promise God gave you, and it's whole inside of you. It's complete. Say, but you don't understand, Eric. I, I can't walk it out. I'm not doing it. I'm not. The last thing that was poured on the top of the ark on the mercy seat was the very blood of Christ. He has sealed your testimony, your calling, your redemption in His blood. We have to take that seriously, don't we? I want to politely suggest to you that when we take communion tonight and you are renewing your sensitivity, your commitment to His blood, that in addition from turning away from the sins of things that you shouldn't have done, and committing yourself to do the things that you should do, to lose your life in Him, and all the things that we always talk about, consider one more thing. If He sealed your testimony in His blood, when you talk about why you can't, when you describe yourself as a failure, you're acting as if His blood is not enough. I'm going to tell you, that hurts my feelings a little bit. It hurts my feelings for a couple of reasons. Number one, you guys are our life work. We're supposed to present you perfect in Christ. And just like every other calling, we don't have the power to do it, but we're working at it every day, trusting Him. Number two, it hurts my feelings because He gave so much. It feels like we're not showing proper respect when we think more of our weaknesses and failures than we do His blood that seals our testimony. It hurts my feelings because I love Him and He said it is finished. Now if He can tell Abraham you're the father of many nations and Abraham has to trust Him until He becomes that, when He tells you it's finished, can't we trust Him until the testimony is finished I do not want you to be unnecessarily somber it is a serious thing to take the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ but the point is this is our victory this this is not a tragedy Jesus Christ was not a victim he gave his life this is the triumph of human achievement, God's work inside of humanity, that Jesus Christ submitted even to death on a cross and was raised perfect. It is the absolute ultimate proof that not one of you is beyond His reach. Not one of you is broken beyond His repair. Not one of you has failed beyond His recovery in your life. The real question is, do you actually trust Him or do you just pay lip service to it? Because when you trust, it will show up in your actions. When you take communion tonight, 
as you take the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, as you receive the cup of forgiveness, you commit to him that you will pick back up a plow that you set down. That when you look in the mirror, you will see what he says you should see. That when you dwell on your thoughts, you will hear his word and not your word exalted above his. That even about yourself, you will think about yourself as God says. I'm through with false humility in the church of God. We need to be what he has said we are and we need to be proud when he has brought us to places we can say, at least in this one area, I'm doing it. Y'all, look, I'm riding the bike. It's happening. <clears throat> we spend enough time talking about all the times we fell. Let's spend some time focused on running the good race. Could you stand to your feet? <clears throat>